Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Hoisenstamm, and this is The Guitar Life. My special guest today, from Southern California, is the great Baba Elefante, fantastic bass player. to say I hope you enjoy our conversation I'm doing very well thank you and how have you been just recovering from the COVID or from something personal (laughs) six broken ribs but I'm fine oh that's right (laughs) tell me a little bit about that you were uh you got hurt uh riding a bike huh I was riding and, and the tire popped so I, the bike swooped from underneath me and I hit the pavement, right? Probably tried to brace myself and blew out a whole rack. <laughs> uh, but you didn't damage your fingers or your arm or your... Everything's good. I, I Immediately I got up. After I got out of the ER, I held the base. I go, okay, I'm good here. Now I just <laughs> to deal with this thing. <laughs> I feel like Joe Pass after my car accident, you know? Right, right. <laughs> you know, he had to have his arm operated on and the doctor said, do you want to dangling down or do you want it at an angle like this he says i want it at an angle like this so i can play the guitar so he had his arm fixed so he could still hold the guitar didn't that happen to les paul too that's who who did i say yeah. go pass oh sorry God. les paul right yeah get a gun <laughs> put put the host in the coffin boy that was some poor information joe pass uh oh, i got stories about him too but uh they're not about injuries, more like near near fatal injuries. <laughs> I went to his house for a guitar lesson and uh Really? Yeah. I was a little early and I stopped at a gas station right off the freeway. And uh I'm putting gas in my car. I'm standing there, right? And this little car comes down the ramp off the freeway and just comes right through the intersection. And bad like that. It was Joe Pass on his <laughs> on his way to our lesson. No way. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, he wanted to make sure he got there before I did. Oh, that's pretty funny. It was his how house out, out in the valley, yeah. How how was the lesson? He was fantastic. Well, he didn't let me off the hook at all. He says, you're not good at this. You need to practice this. you got to get better at this. He he says, what have you been working on? I go, this and this. He goes, oh, come on, man. you got to work on this and work on that, you know. <laughs> you can't do that. You know, he was just so direct, but that's exactly what I needed. Someone told me that he he would do sometimes he would do lessons and he would do like uh, okay stop me when you, when you want to know what I'm doing <laughs> he'd play <laughs> well he didn't do that for me but he'd always talk about what he was doing the thing oh that, yeah the, taking away uh, you know aside from the fact he gave me a work uh, ethic you know right to 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 practice uh, on what I was doing he. Um, 
he was very big on polyphonic harmony. That's his like. Oh I, yeah. That's his main his main trick, you know. So like if you're in the key of A, you'd be uh, improvising or harmonizing off of an E flat, you know, up a, a tritone. Oh wow, interesting. Yeah. That was his that was his main. Uh, you know, all the lessons I went to, we kept working on that to try to develop my ears so I could hear that kind of tonality. He probably had uh, all kind of, all the chords that go with it in the tritone thing, and yeah. Yeah, like 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 if you're playing an A13 chord, if you put an E flat in there, it can right. be an E flat. What is that? A sharp nine, sharp five chord. Either, yeah, that's the uh, the beauty of uh, what dominant uh, type chords. Yeah, they're interchangeable uh, from a tritone system, right? Do, I do, do teach, actually. You teach yeah. your bass students that kind of stuff, or does that happen? Well, even in a blues, you know, if they're walking twenty or thirty years, even like you know, in, if you're walking down like a jazz blues, from the one to the six. You'll use like say uh, you're going from G to E. You know you'll do G, go up the flat five. You'll you'll move in tritones like that. It's very common. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Uh, Bob Conti, uh, he said, yeah. uh, "This is blues theory." You know, he'd want to ask him a technical question, and he goes, "No, this is blues theory. We don't <laughs> we don't get technical here." You're half a step above the chord that you're going to play, and then you go into the chord. But if you leave the one chord, and you're on your way to the four chord, and you go up a half a step above the four chord, then you're at the, the flat five, which is, you know, or sharp four or sharp eleven, whatever you want to call it. You're a half step above the four chord that you're on your way to, which is a tritone change. What town are you from? I grew up in uh, Ontario, California. You're a native Southern Californian. Yes, I am. That's a yeah. rarity. You know that, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. In our generation. Most there were a lot of good musicians in the Inland Empire when I was growing up, though. Like, uh, are you familiar with uh, the Rosses? Rosses? Uh, yeah, like Jeff Ross. Tell me about them. <clears throat> Jeff Ross and, 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 uh, and uh, Kurt Ross, they, they all had, they had a band called The Unforgiven that was signed. And, you know, Jeff's a guitar player, played with Willie Nielsen for a little bit. and, and uh, But during that era... You know, uh, there were bands. It was G DJs did not exist. Oh, so I, yeah, right. Sure. Every every wedding, every high school dance, everything. You know, we had a band. So we, I grew up as a kid playing in with my cousins and brothers in a band uh, called the Brotherhood. Is that and, right? And that was that was my cousin uh, cousins Dino and John. My brother my brother John. He's a singer, John. right? Your brother. Yeah, my cousin's uh, my my brother's a guitar player. My cousin John's a very good singer. Went on to sing with Kansas. Oh wow! For, yeah, for a couple of years. Oh, and, he was and, a uh, top pro. Yeah, yeah, he got that gig. And they and came out of Ontario, those guys, huh? They came, They actually moved here from New York, and and uh, and they uh, lived with us for a while, and then they resided in in Lakewood, California, and we would have band practices either at their house or our house, and. Whose ever house it was, the mom made the pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, yeah. The mom. Hey, uh, so these guys were your, your peers or your cousins at your same age uh, uh, group, but uh, how about earlier uh, relatives that were uh, any musicians like uncles or uh, great-grandfathers or any of that kind of thing that you can think of? Oddly enough, there were, you know, my dad was a professional boxer, <laughs> and yeah, so he had rhythm yeah right <laughs> but like uh, my Davis. mom played yeah my mom played a little piano and my mom loved jazz okay and, and my dad being a boxer he boxed in you know in back east in new york and and he would get into uh um basically he boxed under under the card with a great heavyweight named archie moore and I've archie moore him. would take him into in, into birdland yeah. And they'd go see Charlie Parker, Ella Fitzgerald, and all these great jazz things. My mom was a huge fan of, of jazz, yeah. Oh, so you were listening to jazz as a kid? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Those hard 78 records. <laughs> um, now, I've noticed that you play a fretless bass most of the time, 24-7, you know? Yeah. And upright, right? Those are fretless yes. instruments. But did you go through a transitional period where you are playing a fretted bass first, and then you moved on to a fretless... Uh, instrument later or was that always the type of instrument you played oh no i started on on, on fretted bass for sure okay when did you played, get, uh, sorry go ahead go ahead 
Yeah. When did you when did you pick up the upright bass? Later on, when I started getting into jazz, I picked up upright, you know, and started playing what age that a bit. Yeah. I was age? probably I I've always had one, maybe when I fifteen years old I've oh, had okay. one. That's I never what... really got serious on it till in my mid twenties. Oh, okay. And and then got to be where I can gig on it and all that. You know, I've always sort of been intrigued by one and had one, but yeah. Yeah, so you didn't get to play one of those in the school, like in middle school or high school, where you were actually playing upright with the uh, school band or anything like that? No, it's it's really a trip, because when I was 12, we had this family band, and I, I was never in the school band, because we, we, we were already playing professionally. We were doing all the dances. We were doing Knott's Berry Farm, Disneyland. With the cousins. A, yeah, yeah, with the cousins, yeah. Well, that must have we been had outfits. We had outfits and we had, you know, choreography and, and uh, yeah, it was a, it was a family band. Yeah. You, you're a professional from the get go. Pretty kind, much. Yeah. Kind of similar to me. I started getting paid when I was around 13, 14. And, yeah. Uh, since I didn't have an overhead living with my parents, I spent everything on equipment. So, right. So I had all the biggest equipment, all the best basses because I was playing bass then. And uh, little did we know how much time we had on our hands. I wish I would have taken more advantage of it. <laughs> Jeez, I used to, uh, once I became a, a, a dad and I had four kids, I used to just kind of aimlessly wander through parks and stuff, looking up at the sky going, do you remember when you could just, you know, <laughs> right, yeah. do whatever oh, yeah. you want? <laughs> yeah, the learning days, man. That was, yeah. Yeah, was... yeah. well, I took advantage of those. I, I practiced, you know, uh, enough to like uh, get good enough to earn a living, I guess you could say. <laughs> You know, you got to understand too. When I when I first started playing bass, it was it was uh, nineteen. Let's, let me think a second here. Sixty nine, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Summer of love. Yeah. Or was that sixty seven? Actually, before that, maybe it was sixty. Let me let me think a second. Okay, so it was six, uh, eight, four. Yeah, it was, it was like nineteen sixty six. Okay. And. Uh, and, uh, you know, bass hadn't been around that long, electric bass. Yeah. It really hadn't been. You know, 1950 were crude ones, you know, so it only been around maybe less than 20 years. Yeah, you know? yeah. My, my uh, aunt gave me an old 50s one. That was my first bass when wow. I was nine, nine years old. I had a Fender with a serial number like 0540. Oh, man, don't you wish you had that? Let's not talk about that. Because I could retire I mean, there, with all the instruments. Yeah, there weren't any really good teachers either, you know, around that time there, there'd be piano <laughs> players teaching you bass or guitar players and no one played electric bass. So it was like hard to find a teacher. You, you know, that joke about the, the bass player that takes a couple of lessons and he's start, starting to gig. I, I, that I actually don't. that actually happened to me. The bass player at the local music shop, Whittier Plaza Music, he taught me boom, 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 boom. <laughs> that was it. There's your blues career right there. Yeah. And I was, that was, that, three weeks later, I was already playing because I was the only bass player in town working with every kid my age, you know? I have to tell you a story about that. Okay. So when, when I first started playing bass, my brother played guitar. He was a year older. And so everything I was playing was like, da da da, da 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 da, with the guitar player. Da 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 da. da. Yeah, so yeah. it was an E string on the guitar, basically. Unison. Yeah. And that was like surf music and, you know, and, and you know, the, uh, Hang On Sloopy and all those tunes, you know. And then w when I discovered da, 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 that counterpoint, it was like, it's, I felt so much liberation because I'm not playing with the guitar players playing now. He's doing something different. <laughs> it was like, it blew my mind. And, and it really kind of encouraged me. That, that one line right there encouraged me to, yeah. to learn study theory. That was the so line, huh? Yeah, the boogie woogie, boogie woogie line. Yeah. So, so transitioning into jazz, um, when did you get your first uh, fretless bass, and uh, how did you get influenced in a in a way that encouraged you to move in that direction? Well, like in in this probably seventy nineteen seventy two something like that. You know, um, I started listening to a lot of fusion players, and I, I've always been into uh, into straight ahead jazz. Probably my why I always wanted to own an upright was Ray Brown was probably the first guy. Yeah, was, yeah, well, he's fantastic. And, and then you know, then then got into like uh, oh, I remember actually when I was around fifteen, I almost quit because I was I was getting bored with it. I was saying this is a uh, 
I can play anything I hear on the radio. I was teaching a little bit, you know, just little licks to kids on the block. And, and then someone played me a Stanley Clark record and I go, holy moly, that's a bass. <laughs> and <laughs> it turned my head around. And then, then when, when, from there, I, I, you know, I started looking for every solo bass record I could find just to see this other direction the bass went in, you know? Yeah. And then I think uh, off of Al Miola record, I, I heard Jaco Pastorius on one of the cuts. Yeah. And I really related to him because he was coming from R&B, yeah. which I was a huge fan of. And, and, and uh, uh, it was a little funkier than straight ahead jazz, you know, Right. and funk he was coming from. So then I you know, bought his record and he was playing fretless. And I go, oh, I'm going to get a fretless bass. That's probably how it started. Yeah. Yeah. Jaco Pastorius, he influenced a lot of people to do that. Go to the fretless. Yeah. Wow. What a musician. That, that album, that first album is where he plays a Donna Lee. You know, oh, yeah. That blew everybody's mind. Yeah, I mean, on that album, I think every bass player, it was records at the time, they were actually albums. Every bass player, I think, owned three of those because they wore out with the needle trying to learn the stuff. They wore <laughs> them out. Yeah, I believe it. Hi, this is John Heusenstam. You're listening to a Believe podcast, and that's Bob Elefante. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. So, so you really didn't play uh, music in school at all, really? No, I didn't. No. Yeah. Okay. But but here you are. You're uh you could call yourself a professor in a way. Uh you I, te I, yeah, you I, teach at the college level and you teach in yeah. uh, uh uh a sort of a sophisticated private school uh, arts, you know, advanced arts type of uh environment. But here you are. Uh, do you have any kind of degree in music at all? You got, yeah, you got a a, a complementary degree. What do you call that? Well, uh, it's like an honorary degree. <laughs> Complimentary. You know, yeah, through, through that, that too. <laughs> it's, well, it's that's nice of them to, to kind of hire you without having to have a, more of a qualification. Yeah, through the arts, you could do that. You know, basically, when they when Cal Poly Pomona is where, where, where I teach. Oh, okay. They, they were looking for, I was recommended by a couple of teachers there, you know. And I go, okay, here we go. And I, I'm going to write them a letter. Look, I do not have a music degree, you know. Uh, thanks for asking, though. And they go, well, you know, send us some letters, you know, that, that people and I, I so I got all the top people that I play with um, that are heads of that doctrines of music and stuff that, I, that are good musicians. Dr. Joe Jewell, Reed Gratz uh, from the, a lot of the local colleges. And they wrote me great letters. And, and, and I remember going into, into the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing because I've had letters that sound like they come from a higher level even than that, and they didn't get me the job. So oh, yeah. I'm just going, this guy is totally lucky that he was able to get this work, you know? I was in, when I was, I, I didn't know I was already hired. You know, I was in this meeting for Cal Poly, and they go, okay, fill out all the uh, places, universities you taught and all your degrees. And the guy <laughs> next to me goes, I think I need more room here. And I go, well, I sure don't have that problem. <laughs> I was empty. <laughs> all right. Just take the paper and rip it up. You exactly. Know, take yeah. take care of that. Wow. So, um, so that must have been, um, you know, an adjustment that you had to make once you got into the classroom. Once you started teaching, you had to kind of figure out your own, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, way of implementing some sort of structure. I mean, did you use some yeah. sort of a template to to conduct you know, these I classes? How did you do that? Before I had that gig, I had been teaching a lot of years, and. Uh, I got to say, I developed it through teaching and I developed a very solid way of teaching um, private lessons, basically. And, and like, uh, I got to say this too. In high school, I, I had a music theory class and this, this, uh, this teacher was amazing. I mean, we, we covered everything from, you know, chordal harmony to, uh, to analyzing you know, Bach chorales and figured bass lines. We'd solfege and sing. This teacher was just, uh, it was Mr. Scully. And I, I was ready for that because I, I was really into theory. And from there, you know, from that basis, which he covered like a college, college level class, then I just seek, I was, I was like a theory nut. I'd right. go out and read books. And if I play with people, I'd pull them aside, ask them things, you know? Yeah. And so, so, so when I was, when I started teaching, I kind of found out to have a just to have a really grounded way of teaching, like uh, just know the material you're going to teach, keep it simple, don't overteach. 
you know, that's one of the biggest things. You want to give me, oh, they're excited. You want to give them, every, you know, everything yeah, you know. Give them a bucket of water instead of a glass. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, wow, I just had a great question to ask you. Um, playing jazz, teaching jazz, how many of those students, uh, so how long have you been doing that? Like 30 years or something? At least, yeah. So some of these students that you first taught, they're they're adults. They're you know, have any of them sent you uh, like thank you uh, Facebook uh, messages? Oh and yeah, you, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk talk a little bit about some of those guys, or maybe yeah, they're, they're or maybe done. even some girls even out there that took lessons with it because they yeah, make I mean, fantastic I, 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 bass players. Yeah, some women that graduated from Berkeley. Whoa. You know, uh, two two female students that graduated from Berkeley. There you have it, right there. And then I had, you know, one, this one kid that came to me and uh, he, he was playing Donnelly, you know, but in a different key. <laughs> I go and basically, you know, you probably had students like this too. They, they already have it together. You just got to turn on certain lights and show them which door to walk through. Yeah. Right. You kind of just guide them. And, that, and this guy went on to play with Peter Erskine. And, and then, then I have another student that actually, he took like lessons with me and had to improvise and all that. And he's the, Prince, uh, principal bass player at Las Vegas Symphony. He's the head guy. So he's a he's a career musician. So yeah, you've helped yeah, he you've helped people uh, uh, it, with careers so they could earn a totally. living being musicians. Yeah, and I think I think That's a lot gratifying, of people, don't you think? Yeah, it is. And I, th I think they would have probably followed that path in anyway. It's just that they were with me and, and like I said, it, hopefully it turned some lights on for them and, and, and uh, showed them a good path to go. And a lot of them come back and thank me for, you know, that's really gratifying as a teacher when they come back and said, man, you know, what you showed me, I still use today. And when I teach, I, I use these principles still, you know, that's what I was after that kind of uh, rhetoric. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's great stuff. Congratulations to you. One uh, person would say like, uh, he'd actually went down the line. He goes from, I study with, uh, Jeff Berlin and I got this. I studied with Bunny Brunell and I got this. What I got from you though is understanding the fretboard. You know, yeah, really something practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a very cool compliment. Yeah. I I had a guy come to me for a guitar lesson, and uh, he was getting ready to audition for the Navy, or no, excuse me, the Air Force. Uh, okay. Which I mean, I don't know how many guitar players would want to play. Uh, guitar for the i mean probably hundreds of people probably because sure. it's a career you know great gig and he only wanted to learn how to do one thing how do you play <laughs> giant steps because <laughs> that was in the book as part uh, of the uh, part of the right. audition right? right so i had to <laughs> i gave him the most simplistic you know way i could think of had you already been playing it by this time yeah you play it well yeah yeah so i i uh I don't know if I play it well. I got my own take on it, but I showed him the way that I treat it, and he got the he got the job. So I was no, always I, I always crack up about uh, you know you help people and suddenly they they the doors open like you say you know right which is right. fantastic. So so talk about style a little bit. You know um, you know you're influenced by a guy like Jocko and Stanley Clark, and maybe it was when Stanley Clark was with Return to Forever and Chick Corea. I don't know. That was the first time I ever heard him play, you know, and yeah. he, and, he, he and the, the guitar players like Bill Connors and Demiola, they influenced me. I was already sure. a blues guy, very deeply into trying to be like B.B. King. But talk about style, you know, yourself. And, you know, you can't really like uh, remain in the shadows of those guys. Sooner or later, you got to really figure out a way to play your own stuff and, and re recreate the ideas that are in your own uh, your own heart, so to speak, your own mind. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is there any kind of way to uh, uh, look into that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, See the window into that? Let, let me go back further, though. Like, you know, probably the, some of the first influencers was James Jamerson, who played. Okay, yeah, Motown. Motown. Yeah. Jerry Dramont, he played with Aretha Franklin. Those are my first influences. And it, it's, it's funny because James Jamerson, if you if you lived in that time, that was mind blowing stuff because it, nobody played like that. No, in pop tunes, right. everybody was playing either, either blues lines or they're playing, you know, like, but Jamerson was doing all this movement and these, these active yeah. bass lines. And 
for the it was mind blowing for the time because it's like whoa what's this you know it's a whole it was a whole new concept now that that's how you play the bass <laughs> it's right. kids that's ordinary now you that's know that's a musical lift yeah yeah for the time it was un unbelievable you know so yeah. that's probably where my roots are like early r and b uh and blues i love blues uh because i loved uh you know being a bass player the, the the bass was turned up a little louder in blues records and r and b and funk you know yeah. and, and the, i love the beatles mccartney's bass line was was always melodic yeah, yeah he, melodic was, he was more dominant. melodic but they they put it right into the forefront of the music so you could hear what the bass player was doing. Exactly. It was important. So was, yeah. It was an important yeah. thing to hear instead of it just being a thump in the background, right? Right. It was another another counterpoint, uh, you know, melody going on underneath everything that they wanted you to hear. Yeah. I mean, it was, and then just like, you know, I mean, I grew up playing in the 70s. Man, what an era for bass. The 70s, you had all these like, you know, these funk tunes yeah. and they probably wrote them from a bass. Yeah. Because you know, so what I what I did at, at uh, Orange County School of Arts, I, I for my students, I go, I'm going to write ten prominent bass lines. That when you hear the bass line, you uh you know the tune, okay? So one might be like Brick House, don't 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 don't. Um, a Sly in the Family Stone, like uh, it'd be. I don't know if you hear this. Don't hurt yourself. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. Um, so, thank you for letting me be myself. Yeah. Um, what What's his name? Um, God. Larry Grant. Yeah, Larry Grant. Well, he, he's, is he the guy that started playing with his thumb? Is he he's the, one of the pioneers of pioneers of Yeah. yeah. Graham Central Station. That was his yeah. album. Yeah. That's right. He, I couldn't think of... So, I like... But, I'm embarrassed. But those lines, I, 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 write 10 lines. I, I ended up writing 60-some lines of bass parts. All right. You know, you had you had like like express yourself. You know, I mean, all these great these great bass lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, but Gerald Gerald Johnson. You know, he played uh, bass for Steve Miller. Do you know him? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He, I had him at a gig once. And he, the first thing he said to me he says, "I wrote that line." You know, uh, you know. I didn't make any money off of it. <laughs> <laughs> That famous bass line in the Joker, you know? Right, right. Yeah. He wrote that line. He says, I wrote that line. I go, okay, great. Now let's play some blues, you know? And, and Steve Miller got paid for the song because he, he just yeah. wrote the bass line. Yeah, that's the thing, I, yeah. So uh, so how about traveling? Um, have you done much traveling with your career? I mean, like, uh, have you had exciting tours at all that you could... Uh, um, a little bit, mainly with bands, you know, like with like local region stuff, you know, like um, uh, I did a bit of traveling. I was playing with Frank Stallone for a while. And Sylvester Stallone do... has a brother that's into guitar music. I, yeah, right. Oh yeah, well he was he was in a group called Valentine, and they were they were actually more they were popular before uh, Sly was popular. You know, he, they were kind of a had a couple semi hits in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. He was a big guitar collector. That's where I know him from. Okay, he you yeah. know he'd have his nose uh, in the in the pie when uh, totally. expensive guitars were uh, being put up for sale. You know, like on Craigslist or somewhere. Right. He'd try to be the first guy there and or send out his uh, you know his fetchers to kind of go get that guitar for me. You know. Yeah, he'd go to Norms and pick up rare guitars. You know. Yeah. And, yeah, but he was a definite collector of that. Yeah, but he's he's a good player, and and you know we I did a couple of years with him. We traveled to. Florida, never overseas, but Florida and, and okay. Connecticut, yeah. But your your main uh, your main base is here in Southern California, and you play a lot with uh, Ron Kobayashi, right? That's correct. And yeah. Steve Dixon, Ron Kobayashi piano, Steve Dixon drums, That's like correct. that that trio. You guys have been together for like twenty five years or something like that. Exactly, probably uh, twenty seven years, something like that. Yeah. yeah, it's really an amazing trio because you know I, I freelance, I play with a lot of people. But when you have a group that's cohesive like that, you can put it with anybody and it just works. Let me, let me tell you something. When I was in Australia for 10 years, right, mm -hmm. I came back, you know, just to do some music publishing stuff. And right. I'm going, why why do I have to come back here? You know, this I want to go back to Australia and kick kick it on the beach, you know. 
Right. I was a real beach bum, you know. So I'm in Corona Del Mar, and I went to see this jazz trio, and it was you guys. What was the name of that place you guys were playing next to the uh, yogurt across the street from the yogurt place? Uh, oh, uh, oh yeah, uh, the, uh, oysters. Oysters. Yeah. And 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 he had a real like grand piano that he could play. The baby grand there, yeah. Yeah, which is God, which should be ideal, right, for a piano yeah. player. You've great, got a yeah. grand piano, and this is a gig, and I can just walk in and play. A... I sat down like two feet away from Ron, and he just blew my mind. You know, it was like, I haven't heard a guy play like this since before I went to Australia, you know. Uh, and it gave me kind of like a purpose. It says, well, as long as I'm here in Southern California, I can check out guys like this, like these guys who are real musicians playing real music. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? That's cool, yeah. You guys gave you guys gave me hope that uh, hey man, the jazz scene is alive and well here in Orange County. I remember you came in one time and you brought a ukulele or something or I brought a banjo. Or, banjo, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't have an amp in the car, I had a banjo because I don't I think I was recording something or you write, said writing. Was, yeah. yeah. I tried that's to play awesome. bop lines on the banjo, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was fun. No, you guys are amazing. Uh, uh, that kind of trio uh, could do very well in Europe. And, uh, you know, in Australia, they have uh, jazz societies in all the big cities. Right. And jazz festivals. Uh, I'm surprised right. you guys haven't done more of that sort of. You know, I wish we would have gotten more abroad because I, sadly enough, in America, it's not appreciated as much. It really yeah. isn't. You know, and and uh, the, I think maybe because there's a lot to do, and so it get, you get it gets lost. I mean, you can hear, you can go to LA and hear top jazz players anytime you you know uh, you want. I know when we do, t like we've done some traveling with with Ron. It's more of an event in a small town where Southern California. It's like oh, another thing going on, you know. And uh, although we have some great fans and all that that come out to hear us play, um, but. Yeah, that's what it is, you know. It's but you know, back to the trio. Uh, it was, what's really cool about the trio, we've done jazz festivals. We did a Playboy Jazz Festival one year, and then we we've done uh, like Idlewild and all that. It's it's really a trip because we don't plan anything out. Uh, we've been together so long, we don't make a set list. Ron will just start noodling on the tune. Me and Steve will hear what he's playing, and then we jump in. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys have created a language. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Like to look it. Yeah, so it's great. Too. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, that's uh, well, people. Uh, people really appreciate that in certain parts of the world where, uh, you know, I've had people come up to t tell me at a gig, hey, I'm from Chicago and that tip jar would be completely overflowing with money if you were playing there. You know, they say and I, and I know for a fact that there's these big jazz uh, festivals in Europe where you guys would just. I mean, you're you're really a world class kind of like uh, act, oh, you know. You've been listening to The Meeting. That's Bob Elefante on the bass guitar, Ron Kubiashi on the keyboards, that's Leo Vigil on the drums, and John Heusenstamm on the guitar. This is the Believe Podcast Network, 
And if you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. This is The Guitar Life. Yeah, well, I mean, that it's obvious. I mean, when you, when you see videos near your recordings, right? What, what kind of uh, bass is that that you play? You have more than one uh, five-string fretless bass? I have uh, actually two, two five-string fretlesses, and they're both F basses, like the letter F. George Fernaletto is the Luther. Fer Fernaletto, an Italian guy, huh? Italian, yeah. Yeah. Where? He lives in Canada. And, uh, Canada? That's yeah. How'd you find out about him? I was teaching at the LA Bass Exchange, and this one came in, and I, I kind of heard about the basses. And I walked in, I saw one on the wall they just got, you know, I, I actually, I think I even said, hey, see if you can get one with the alder body, the fretless, you know, ebony neck. And it came in, I, and I, before I started teaching, I played it, and I said, put it behind the counter, I'm taking it when I go home. <laughs> that's, how, that's how I got with the that first one. That was it, huh? Oh, I loved it. It was, a, it was perfect, yeah. And you still have it? I still have that one, and the one, the one you, that I, I played with you, and you see me with, uh, George came down here probably 15 years ago from the NAMM show and said, here, it's an ACL, Elaine Caron model. And he's, he's a, you know, fine bassist. And uh, said, take this. He gave it to me at NAMM show and said, I'm going to be here two weeks, play it. And if you like it, uh, we'll do an artist deal. And, that, and I played it and I loved it and said, okay, let's do it. Yeah. It's great to find an instrument you have a uh, report with, right? Yeah, exactly. Something that you, every time you pick it up, it inspires you to play. You go, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. so glad I have this because if I had one of those, I would quit. You know, that kind of. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, it's funny. I've always been a jazz bass guy or a P bass. Okay. Fenders. And George said, we kind of designed these basses to be, you know, modified jazz bass, even though they look a lot different. Yeah. That's what he designed it after. And it makes sense because they have that, that mid range sound to them still. But uh, they're both uh, five string fretless basses, right? Yes. What What do you have around the house that's a fretted bass? Do you still have anything like that? I have, yeah. I, I actually have a 1964 jazz bass. Ooh. Original, yeah. Oh, that's a that's a. I got that's a dream. Check out this story. I was playing. I had uh, two P basses at the time. This is 1970, probably 1971, 72, something like that. And uh, I would go sit in with the college jazz band just to kind of get my reading chops together. And I take this old, I call it a beach bass. It's an old P bass. I paid a hundred bucks for it. Uh, it was a, maybe a seventies P bass. And the other bass player there had a jazz bass. And he goes, man, I love the sound of your P bass. Let's, you want to trade? I go, I'll trade you. But you know, cause I have two P basses. It'd be nice to have a jazz bass. So I traded them the jazz bass and, and then straight over, you know, paid a hundred bucks for the P bass. Basically I paid a hundred bucks for the jazz bass. We traded and maybe about 10 years later, I go, wonder what year that is. And it happened to be 19, 1963, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Worth like $15,000, something like that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, good for you, man. That's a good, that's a feel-good story. You still then have I, it. I also have a, a, a five-string Federa. Federa? Federa, which are really, real beautiful basses, and a five-string uh, Sire that Marcus Miller uh, makes, a Sire bass, beautiful bass. Oh, base. wow. So you, yeah. should, so you have a, a clutch of a, instruments for different purposes, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. What what uh, what sort of amps are you using these days? Mainly, I'm using Epiphany. Epiphany. New York. Uh, Epiphany, not Elefante. <laughs> Epiphonic. Yeah, Ep Epiphany. Epiphany. Uh, That's another Italian yeah. guy, huh? Yeah, it is. Yeah, Nick Epiphany. Yeah. Now, is that you do that intentionally to try to keep the Italians in business? No, or? <laughs> no that's just coincidence. It just I, I play these amps are lightweight. Okay. And they're all like ultra light and, and they sound great and, and uh, easy to get around and just, yeah, just, it's, it's kind of like a, I'm not a real technical guy. So I want to plug in, I want to sound right. And that's basically what. But they're very light uh, and they still have a deep, rich sound, huh? Beautiful. Yeah. That's, exactly. that's the important thing. So you're not hurting yourself uh, like you do when you ride a bike, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Do you, do you have any, um, I mean, amps that you used to have uh, or that you've, kept since uh you know the 60s or 70s that you still have around the house that you not really because all, all those bass amps they were crap <laughs> you know they really were they didn't make good bass amps still i do have one classic though but you know i started out on a basement right basically it was a piece of crap you know you yeah. turn it past three wouldn't do anything i had a guild for a while a guild amp that was crap good then i had a basement <laughs> with two clouds when i started and then i go i'm gonna get the 215 model you know i spend 
I spent another 600 bucks and got the Fender two uh, basement 215. Show, showman do, or whatever it was? Yeah, it was a color basement, but I could, instead of distorting at three, I could go up to maybe four. <laughs> it was, oh. wasn't much better. Oh, okay. First successful bass amp, and I still have the head. I, I, I teach with it at, at Fullerton Music, is the Acoustic 371. Right. Acoustic. Big folded horn, yeah. 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 Oh, good. Yeah, they, they were they were good guitar amps too. I think. Yeah, I saw Frank Zapp at UCLA. He was playing an acoustic. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Way back in the they were, day. They were great. Yeah. Any uh, accessories that uh, you uh, rely on ever, like that's important to your sound, or do you usually just plug straight in and that's it? Um, I usually plug straight in. I, I do have a pedal board I used to use with with a certain band that had. Octave pedal, distortion, delay, chorus, and I stopped. Yeah, chorus pedal. Yeah, and I still have it, but I really don't. I don't use it live anymore. But uh, I have a looper pedal. I mess around with a little bit, um, and then I, you know I do some solo bass gigs as well, where I do a lot of jazz tunes with chords, like almost like a guitarist would do chord melody stuff. Yeah. And I'm actually looking for a good reverb for that. I'm gonna find just because it's nice to have a little reverb on that. Okay. And I do that with fretted bass. It works a little better, yeah. So do you do loops? Do you play with a, a loop pedal or do you? Once in a while I do. I actually like the challenge of not using the looper. Just play like solo guitar, only it's just a solo yeah. bass guitar. Much more of a challenge and I like that, yeah. How long are some of those gigs? How, how long can you keep people's interest? Well, I've done <laughs> That's three not hour an insult, I, by the way. That's, that's, those are two questions. I've done three <laughs> hour gigs. As far as their interest goes, I don't know. <laughs> three hour gig is a solo bassist? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. So I do, you know, I make a, a point when I'm doing something like that. Uh, uh, you, you know, you can noodle and you could, you could, I know the tunes, I have arrangements of uh, tons of jazz tunes, but I make a point to always, I know, like to learn, uh, I know a handful of Beatle tunes, Sting tunes. I throw those in immediately. Everybody goes, they, they, they mouth their, you know, to the words, they know the words. They're with me for the next two or three tunes. Then I got to throw in a pop tune again. <laughs> do my thing in the middle. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So have you got anything in the future, like, uh, that you're working towards having to practice to get ready for? Like, what's going to happen? With, what's going to happen with the school year this year? I'm waiting for your call for this. Yeah, yeah everybody says that to me. Uh, they yeah, it's not Go ahead. Vale, vale Johnson, he's sitting around on his butt. He wanted me to call him up for the Studio Cafe gig again. <laughs> yeah. And he does a solo bass thing as well. When right. you guys tell me that, I go, God, the bass as a solo instrument has come a long way, hasn't it? It really has, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, chords I mean, and do, harmonics and... Yeah. yeah, just the concept you use. You could do it with a looper, which is really cool. Um I just found that to be kind of limit, limiting in a sense because you start making loops and solo over the top of it. But I like to do chordal arrangements. And, uh, you know, I've learned, I, playing with Ron Este, I've learned some interesting things about chords and he's a master at that, you know. And, and, what a uh, great guitarist that yeah. guy is. So I've learned a lot just just by not even asking him, just by sitting down, he'd su suggest certain chords. I go, oh, okay. And it's, it's like going to school every time I play with him. It's, it's so funny you should bring up uh, his name in in the context of like what I was talking about earlier about coming back to California and twiddling my thumbs and going, oh God, here I am again, driving back and forth on the freeway trying right. to get some action. And I went to my first NAM show ever, right? Because okay. I started working at the uh, guitar shop in Laguna Beach and we all had to go to the NAM show to, you know, to keep up on what current uh, products are that are out there. Right. And so he was playing in the Polytone booth, Ron Eshte. Oh, know? okay. So there was this big crowd of people around the Polytone booth. And they were all watching Ron play. And I knew Ron from before I even went to Australia, back oh, okay. in uh, the Orange County area. He was playing all over the place, you know, when he was young. I think I was 17. Sure. He was 24, you know. And I, would, lot noise I yeah. would borrow my brother's driver's license so I could get into the clubs to see Ron play. Oh, wow. So here Ron is. Ron's playing in the uh, Polytone booth at the NAM show. And after I heard him, I go, that's why I've come back. I'm back here yeah. in California to hear guys like that. That was yeah. crazy, you know. 
that guy is so good. I need to start practicing again. <laughs> no, he does what he does. He does it better than anybody. His thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's an amazing harmony, uh, harmony uh, knowledge. Like a piano of... player on guitar. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then some. <laughs> yeah. So hey, this has that... been great talking to you. You get, haven't got any uh, thing that you were hoping to talk about that I haven't brought up uh, per chance. You know, the, the, other, the other thing I've been doing, I've been doing these like sort of there's a guitarist in New Orleans that I was actually had a trip canceled. I was supposed to be there to play some gigs. Yeah. Um, and then COVID hit. Yeah, and COVID. It's a buddy of mine, Sean Kenner, who used to live out here in Southern California. And he's he's like, I mean, he's like a gypsy. He moved, he moved to San Francisco, made that scene for a while, played jazz there and whatever he was playing there. And then he moved to New York, played there for about three or four years and settled into New Orleans. And, and I've been to New Orleans playing a bunch of gigs with him. So we're doing a, a sort of a, he'll send me some, some guitar stuff and I'll record over the top of it. And a lot of it's just like free jazz, you know, like whatever we want, wherever he goes. And been doing a little bit of that. We're, we're probably going to do a project with it. Oh, the make a recording that, and um, maybe we, play we some started, gigs. Yeah, we we have like uh, we have like uh, you know four or five tunes already done. Oh, I want to hear that when you guys are yeah. done with it. Yeah, when we when I went to New Orleans and played, there's actually a scene out there for improv free jazz, and it's like it's I'm, so I get there the first night there and it's, it's this club and it, that's what the club is for, and nobody says anything on stage. Either I'll start playing or Sean will start playing or a drummer will start something, and we just take it and the song goes on for, you know, like, you know, 40 minutes, you know, and over here and I get off stage, I want to make an apology for it. So sorry, you know, we we're self-indulged, but people are loving it there. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, if you played in that kind of club, if you played standard tunes, they wouldn't dig it. They was, it's meant for that, you know, that it's, an, a art, scene it's an art affair. Yeah. So, yeah. so it's not for everybody's cup of tea, but it was sure a lot of fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's the same sort of like environmental shift that I think the Kobayashi trio with you guys would experience if you were to get to Europe, if you were to be able to, you know, do a, a Canadian tour and then go to Europe and play in England and, you know, and play in Germany and places like that. You'd, you'd see that the audience was uh, educated and, and ready to listen to you guys for what you're really worth, you know, and, and the way you guys can play jazz. You know? Yeah, you know, another thing to uh, to bring up on that, it's I love our record, The Meeting, that we did. Oh, okay. And that was done that way because it was like sort yeah. of sure. you brought the drum tracks to my house and said, okay, have at it. So I, yeah. I could do whatever I want to do. And then you brought then you brought those tracks to Ron and Ron heard that, whatever I did and played off of that. And then, then you took it and, and put all the icing on it. And, and it was a, it's incredible recording. Somebody who I have a lot of respect for as a musician and as a business guy, he got a copy of that and got back to me one time. He says, man, you guys sound like Weather Report. I was really proud of that because uh, I think, you know, I think that the musicians that we that we work with down here, you know, behind the orange curtain really do have the... Uh, you know, the potential to be as creative and as, uh, you know, developed as anybody really uh, in the music. Oh, absolutely. But but we're just kind of like we're down here in, in an isolated kind of bubble. You know, we're not really part of, uh, you know, uh, we, we're not trying to get out of our comfort zone here. You know, I, I live very comfortably, you know, yeah. and it's like the next thing I know is, you know, am I going to get in a van and am I going to drive to uh, Ottawa? Right. You know, right, right. am I going to drive yeah. to Montreal? You know? In Southern California, though, we're spoiled. I mean, yeah, we, that's what I'm saying. I play with some top musicians, you know, name musicians, but right here in Southern California, you, you have yourself, Ron Kobayashi, Steve Dixon, there's Albert Wing, Wayne Wayne. I mean, there's Jody Fisher. There's some great, uh, you know, Ron Este. All these musicians that are that are local that are we're so fortunate, you know, really fortunate. Yeah, no, to that's true. Yeah. Be able to listen to and play with and, you know, it just, it's what a wealth. Yeah. It really is a wealth of, of players. One more thing before we wrap it up. Uh, and that's the, uh, the gigs that you've been doing in Fullerton. Now that all used to be uh, at steamers, which was a great uh, forum for jazz. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now you guys are playing where, uh, uh, what do you call that? Less Ames. 
Leamis. Leamis. Oh, that's L E S A M I S. Leamis. Leamis. That's the French. Yeah, that's the French way of saying it. They're wonderful there. They host. Yeah, they're just great people, and they were one of the ones gracious enough to say, "Okay, come in. We we want to have jazz here. We're not going to hold you to the crowd. It's going to be the restaurants going to get the crowd as well as you guys." Yeah. Yeah. So so you are you there on a regular basis coming up or or how's that? We got to wait for COVID to end, but oh. yeah, it, once it happens, we were there, you know, uh, once or twice a month with Kobayashi Trio. And then I'd have you come and play with, with I had a night there, I'd, I'd have you do it or other trios, you know, um, sometimes I'd do it with just percussion and sax. It was experimental music and it was great. It was a great place to play. Yeah. It's amazing how this thing has affected us, right? The musician oh circle. Oh my geez. Even the, even the greats, like a, like uh, Pierre Ben Suzanne is a fantastic French guitarist, right? He right. says, I've never had more time in my life to just sit around and think about what I'm going to do in the future. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's yeah. unprecedented. Yeah. In my life, I've never been out of a gig for a week. It's yeah. like, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah. People don't see how we've, uh, musicians have been chopped off at the legs. And of course, restaurant entrepreneurs and. Uh, right. Anybody, you know, the movie industry, anybody that's got a social, like, yeah, social yeah. activity for a living where you're interacting with people on a close, you know, close basis, you know, uh, right. Those kind of uh, activities have all been stopped. Hey, hey, you know, this has been uh, really great uh, to talk to you, and I hope we get to play music soon. I do too. Thanks for having me, John. It was really fun. Yeah, no, uh, I think we're in really good company here. Uh, uh, it's interesting. People might wonder why I'm, uh, you know, calling all these bass players to interview because they're the guys I used to play with and I'm good friends with. So ah, I had to sure. start with people that I know and I'm going to slowly branch out into uh, the world of uh, the unknown. Uh, later on in the week, I'm going to interview uh, Larry Kuntz and uh, Oz Noy, who are very, oh, nice. you know, established jazz guitar players. I don't know them at all. Right. So it's going to tell be Larry. I said, hello. Larry's a good friend. Okay. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's a way to get in on the conversation, you know, to make <laughs> to make myself feel more comfortable. <laughs> that's great, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much, and let's keep in touch. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, John. Have Appreciate a good it. one. Talk Take to care. you. Podcast Network. I'm John Heusenstamm, and this is the Guitar Life. You've been listening to Baba Elefante. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B L E A V on YouTube.